Now please turn to Colossians chapter 1. This passage will sound a bit familiar to a few of you. Last week at the nursing home, I preached in this passage uh, to the men and women there. Uh, different message, though. So don't tune out. It's going to be something uh, quite different than what you heard last week with a different purpose, different uh, view of some of the same verses. Colossians chapter 1. Our text this morning will begin in verse 9, and it will go all the way through verse 29, the end of the chapter. We'll hit it uh, in part. This next week we celebrate Independence Day. 237 years ago, this past, or this coming 4th of July, excuse me, the United States declared itself to be a sovereign nation. It declared itself to be independent from the political power, the political authority of England. Now as a nation, the United States, to one degree or another, uh, at least in theory, is independent in its actions and in its decisions. Now, those of you who have studied history to any degree uh, understand the situation leading up to Independence Day as well as the war that was fought in regard to our nation's independence. And as we think about the Revolutionary War, as we consider the men and what they did and what they went through, as we think about even what was established following with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, as we think some hundred years later of the Civil War and the state's rights issues that were fought during the Civil War, what we have to recognize about the history of the United States of America is that we are a nation that has been formed to be a culture driven by the concepts of independence. It's not just our nation founded upon the concepts of independence, independence from England, but literally everything about why the pilgrims came over to begin with, everything about why religion, uh, various religions of the world established themselves in the colonies, everything about the war for independence, everything about the Civil War, everything really about United States history in a government sense points to the reality that our culture has been formed around concepts of independence. That each man is a master of his own domain, and he is able, within the bounds of morality and reason, to do what he would like with that which is his own. Concepts of liberty, of personal property, these are things that are ingrained into the history of the United States of America. Now, as we look at the landscape today, we recognize that the philosophies of independence and even that of liberty is quickly fading in the United States. And you might say, why? What, what's going on here? Well, it's really because the concept of personal rights, the concept of personal liberty, these concepts are rooted in the Judeo-Christian God. They are rooted in Jehovah God. As we think about the biblical doctrines, even that this church holds to so dearly, we recognize that the ideas of liberty are founded in the precepts and principles of Scripture. We speak about the free will of man, which focuses upon a man's individual liberty to choose what is right before God, specifically as it relates to his son, Jesus Christ. As we think about the concept of individual soul liberty, 
whereby we understand from God's word that each man has both the liberty as well as the responsibility to act according to the dictates of his own conscience as led by the Holy Spirit of God and knowing that he is accountable unto God and before God alone for the manner in which he lives his life before God. As we consider these concepts, these concepts that truly are uh, an important part of how we serve God, we recognize that a country such as the United States was simply reflecting what the scriptures taught about God and man when they erected the system of government that we know of today as the Republic of the United States of America. So as we see biblical teaching disappear in this country, as a understanding and a relationship with God and His Son Jesus Christ begins to become a thing of the past for our culture. As culture degrades, as government and men in government reject their responsibility before God, it is expected and inevitable that these concepts of personal rights and of personal liberties that we often hold dear will deteriorate with them. It's going to happen as men and women reject God. And you know, the absence of an adherence to the biblical teachings of free will of man and individual soul liberty have been the driving force of religious persecution throughout history. And not just religious persecution, those who persecute religious people, but religions persecuting others. As religious groups have sought to impose their belief system upon the masses by ridicule, by torture, by confiscation of property, by execution, by imprisonment, or as non-religious groups have sought to hold down religions under the same principle, we recognize that where the Bible is taught and where the Bible is obeyed, individual liberty abounds. Where God's word is rejected, individual liberty disappears. But there's something very interesting about the idea of personal independence, personal liberty in this world, and particularly as it relates to our spiritual lives, biblical Christianity, that I would like us to think about today. It's perhaps something that you've never thought about before, but I think it's something we need to think about. It's something that the Christian world in the United States perhaps doesn't notice, but it's reflecting on how we live our lives before God. See, while it's very true that God has given us the freedom to exercise our will for or against Him, while it's very true that God has given us His Spirit whereby we are called to serve God according to the dictates of our own conscience as led by the Holy Spirit within the bounds of His revealed Word, these liberties have absolutely nothing to do with independence. Say, Pastor, are you splitting hairs? A little bit this morning, but not really. Liberty and independence aren't necessarily synonymous. And I hope that we'll see that this morning as we recognize the liberties we have in Christ. 
We need to parse that from an idea that we are independent in Christ. And what I hope to show you today is that the word of, uh, from the word of God is that mankind truly has no capacity for independence. Nor should you desire independence. God has created us to be a people that need fellowship. God has created us as a people that need government, that need leadership. We were made to be governed. Lack of government is anarchy. Anarchy has been proven time and time again throughout history to be unsustainable for human living. Because mankind needs leadership. And mankind needs fellowship. And this is not by accident. Much rather, the character of God has been instilled in this idea that mankind needs leadership. It is instilled in the heart of every man to seek leadership in order that we might naturally seek to God, not just as our Savior, but also as our leader and as our guide. And so the danger is this. That we as Americans are a culture built around the concepts of independence. And as we carry this into our lives and into our politics, there's a danger that we can carry it over into our spiritual lives as well. And thus, perhaps unknowingly, we would assert this independence even over God as we seek to live the Christian life. And this is what I want to caution us against today. Three elements of the Christian life that demonstrate our complete dependence upon God. You say, of course, Pastor, you're you're really going to preach a message on how, as Christians, we need to be dependent upon God. Yes, I am. Because I think it's something we can miss. And I think particularly as Americans, we can miss this concept because of our strong adherence to the principles of independence and personal liberty. Now, the bulk of the passage that we're going to be looking at today is in the context of a prayer by Paul to the Colossian believers. He prays that they would be filled with the knowledge and understanding of God's will. And he prays that they would walk worthy of the Lord. It is within this prayer that Paul then expounds upon the greatness of God. And it is within the context of the greatness of God that we learn about the dependence that we have upon God for the spiritual benefits and blessings of this life and the next. Now, I told you at the beginning of this message that I preached this last week, and as I preached it last week, I preached it with a salvation emphasis. And as I preach it this week, I'm going to preach it, and as we draw out the characteristics of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ, I'm going to preach it from the perspective of highlighting our need for Him. But let me mention this before we begin as well, because whenever I preach something like this, I'm preaching expositionally, but I'm also preaching topically. I have chosen a topic, and I have found a passage of Scripture wherewith I feel comfortable expounding upon that topic. I don't like doing that. I never like doing that. And the reason why I don't like doing that is because I feel like we so often draw the Scriptures out of context in order to prove a point, Or we draw the scriptures out of context in order to say something that the Bible is really not saying. But rest assured this morning as I preach this message, while we're looking at it from this angle of of dependence, 
What Paul is trying to say in this passage, verses 9 through 29, he's expounding upon the foundation for and the motivation of the church as we recognize the blessings that God has given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so this prayer is that these men and women would be filled with the knowledge of God, and then Paul goes on to expound upon what this knowledge is that he desires them to be filled with. I'm not deviating from that. I'm more or less applying it. And perhaps nobody in here this morning would have had any problem at all if I hadn't given that caveat. But if I was listening, I might have had one. So uh, I wanted to mention that this morning. So let's look at these three elements of the Christian life that demonstrate our complete dependence upon God. And the first one that I would like us to see this morning is this. You are completely dependent upon God for salvation. You are completely dependent upon God for salvation. Look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all will, wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering, with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. God has made you meet, the scriptures say. Now, this is not M-E-A-T. He hasn't made us meet. Well, he, he has made us as flesh. But what, he, what the scriptures is saying here is that God has made us sufficient, fit, equipped with the power to perform one's duties. That's what that word meet means here in the original languages. Literally, Paul states that God the Father, the God of all the universe, the God who made heaven and earth, the thrice holy God, has personally taken the steps necessary to make you worthy to partake of the inheritance of the saints. Let me say that again. God the Father, has personally taken the steps necessary to make you worthy to partake in the inheritance of the saints. This inheritance is one that is spoken of all throughout the epistles, all throughout the New Testament. In Ephesians 1.14, Paul tells us that this inheritance is revealed in part through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. In Hebrews 9, verse 15, this inheritance is called eternal. In 1 Peter 1, verse 4, this inheritance is called incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. This inheritance that God has made us fit, worthy to be a partaker of, as we think about this inheritance, let me ask you a question. What is the assurance? The inheritance of the saints. It's eternal. The inheritance of the saints that is revealed and promised to us through the Holy Spirit. The inheritance of the saints that is undefiled, that is incorruptible, that fadeth not away, that's reserved in heaven for you. What's your assurance? Well, we know the Holy Spirit is our earnest. We know that the Word of God promises it. But have you ever thought, have you ever considered that the assurance that you have, 
that that inheritance is waiting for you is nothing less than the promise of God. Is nothing less than the faithfulness of God. May I put it another way? You are entirely dependent upon God to see that the things He has promised comes to pass. There is nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. We know that. There is nothing you can do to make yourself worthy of your salvation. We know that. That means that your salvation is entirely dependent upon the promise and the power of God. You don't want to be independent from that. You don't want independence from that. He has made us meet. It goes on. Notice what it says in verse 13. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. God has not just made you meet, but He has delivered you. The specific thing from which He has delivered us, according to verse 13, is the power of darkness. Now, as we think about this, the term darkness is speaking of that world system. The satanic world system that pervades this world. And as God tells us that we have been delivered from the power of darkness, what He's speaking of there is literally the authority of that darkness. We know that that darkness still has the ability to affect us. But it no longer has authority over us. In other words, we have been delivered from the authority and the capacity of Satan and the world system to have any sway over us as believers. Ephesians 5.8 says this, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Ye were a, one time a part of this system, but you're no longer a part of this system now. You have been delivered from the power, from the authority of darkness. And Ephesians 5.8 tells us to walk as children of light. As we see the second half of verse 13 here in Colossians 1, it says that He's delivered us. It says, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. The other side of the deliverance coin is this transfer of authority that we were under the power of, of the darkness of this world, of the satanic world system, and now we are under the authority of the kingdom of Christ. The moment you believed on Jesus Christ unto salvation, God judicially removed you through the Holy Spirit from the umbrella of Satan's authority and what? Gave you complete independence? No. Did he take you from independence and make you a servant? It's not what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? You were removed from the authority of Satan's kingdom and you were transferred, translated under the authority of Christ's kingdom. Do you see where I'm going with this? Two thoughts here in this first point. First, you never have, nor will you ever be spiritually independent. Every man serves something. You will either serve Satan and his kingdom, or you will serve Christ and his kingdom. It is not for us to seek independence, 
but to place our service under the right master. You will either serve the flesh and thereby serve Satan, or you will serve the spirit and thereby serve Christ. That's it. If you're not serving Christ, you're serving Satan. If you're not serving Satan, you're serving Christ. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground. There's no other option. There is darkness and there is light. That's it. I was talking to a young man a little better than a year ago. Witnessing to him. And he, I, I, I told him that there's, there's two choices. There's, there's Christ or there's not. There's belief or there's unbelief. There's light and there's dark. And he said, but that's not the world we live in. He said, look at the world around us. There's color. We don't live in a black and white world. We live in a color world. There, there's a spectrum everywhere. And I looked at him and I said, yes, but when you think about, and he was an artist, that's why this came up. I said, when you think about the color white, what color goes into making white? He said, well, white. I said, okay, what colors do you mix to get black? He said, well, you mix everything. I said, right. You mix everything and what do you come up with? You come up with black. There's white and there's black. And black is simply a combination of every color that's not white. There's light and there's darkness. You serve Christ or you serve Satan. You serve the kingdom of Christ or you serve the kingdom of Satan. And there is no middle ground. Now, we may call it different shades. We may call it different colors. We might call it different religions. But if it's not Christ... Christ says, if you're not for me, what? You're against me. You have never been, nor will you ever be independent. You will serve something. Second, did you notice the various descriptions of your salvation as we read through them? Who hath delivered us, who hath translated us, who hath made us meet? You learned of the gift. You believed the promises, you accepted the offer, but everything having to do with the transaction between you and God at salvation and everything having to do with your translation from darkness to light was affected by you? No. By the power of God. It doesn't say you, you translated. It doesn't say that you became meat. It doesn't say you delivered. It says God has made you meat. God has delivered you. God has translated you. God did the work. And then as we just learned, we rely on his character, not only to bring it all to pass, but to keep it for us until the day of salvation. And as we think about this passage of scripture, we recognize that we are completely dependent upon God, are we not? Didn't we learn about that this morning as well? God's great plan. His plan from beginning to end, from the day he created man to the day he consummates everything at the end of the millennium. It's all about God and our need for him. You are completely dependent upon God for salvation. Second, this morning, you are completely dependent upon God for sanctification. You are completely dependent upon God for sanctification. Look with me in ver at verse 15. Speaking of um, Jesus Christ here, he says, who is the image 
of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. You are completely dependent upon God for salvation. You are completely dependent upon God for sanctification. Verses 15 through 17 reveal that Jesus Christ, this one to whom the kingdom of God belongs, the kingdom of Christ, was creator and is sustainer of all that is. 1 John 1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Scriptures tell us that the Word of God created all that is. That Jesus Christ is indeed the creator and is now the sustainer of His creation. But this creation and sustenance is not only over the physical world in which we live, it's over the spiritual world as well. Verse 16 describes Christ as being over all things, both visible and invisible. Whether they are the kings of this world or those dominions and principalities that are in the unseen world, all things were created by Him and for Him. And that he is before, that word literally meaning greater than, ahead of, in preeminence over all things. And by him all things consist, that word literally meaning sustained. And that brings us to lesson two. Look with me at verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. The moment you became a believer, the moment you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by grace through faith, you humbled yourself before Him, you accepted both His person and His work, you accepted why He came, why He was here, what He came to do, you believed that He was risen again, you believed that He's on high, you believed that He's coming back for His own. You were translated from being a servant of Satan, serving this world system, to being a servant of God, serving the kingdom of Christ. As a servant of God, you have been placed into a body called the church. And you became a functioning member of Jesus Christ's body. Jesus Christ is described as the head of this body. The first responsibility of this membership is personal spiritual growth and fitness, what we call sanctification. Look with me now in verses 19 through 23. For it pleased the Father that in Him, that's Christ, should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Look at verse 23 though. If you continue in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. He's not saying here that you can lose your salvation, but what Paul is using here is language that informs us of the imperative nature of us after we become a part of the body of Christ, continuing in the faith, continuing 
to grow. We have the responsibility not only to accept the gift of salvation in order that we might be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ, but then we are given the responsibility to live in the light that we have. Ephesians 5.8, let me read it again. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We don't just become a part of the light, we then walk in the light. This means that we are daily yielding ourselves to Christ. Daily dying to self. Daily applying the word of God to our lives personally. And notice what I said. Daily yielding requires daily death to self. Paul would say this in Romans chapter 7 verse 18. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me but how to perform that which is good I find not. He would go on to say this in Romans 8 verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. I'd like to remind you of a concept, a very important concept today. The Christian life is not about me doing good things any more than it is about me not doing bad things. The Christian life is about me being dead and Christ being alive through me. Let me say that again. The Christian life is not about me doing good things any more than it is about me doing bad things, not doing bad things. The Christian life is about me being dead and Christ being alive through me. Paul would say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. The Christian life is not about me replacing the bad things that I want to do with the good things that I don't want to do, nor is it about replacing the bad things I don't want to do with the good things that I want to do. It is about replacing me in any capacity with Christ in me. It's about me dying to self and living unto Christ. It's about me dying to me and living to God. And when we do this, Colossians 1 verse 27, a little bit farther down in your passage, describes it this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, the fact of the matter is this. You have no capacity in yourself to live a life pleasing to God. If we are not careful, we begin to think this way as Christians. Okay, God, you saved me. I owe you. So now you get this part of my life. Or now I get rid of this thing. Or now I do these good things. But when we think about the essence of what God asks us to do, the essence of dying to self and living unto Christ, it is not me attempting to assert some ability in myself to do good. It is me doing good as I yield myself to the Spirit of God. It is me pleasing God through the Spirit. It is me not forcing, not conjuring up morality. It is me exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit as I yield to it. See, if I'm trying to conjure up good things, that is me attempting to serve God while at the same time asserting my independence from God. In other words, it's me saying, God, I, I'm going to serve you because you saved me, but I'm going to do it in my power and do it my way. 
I'm going to assert my independence from you. But see, we're not independent creatures. Just as we are, we're not independent in our salvation, nor do we rely upon ourselves to secure the blessings of salvation in heaven one day, we cannot rely upon ourselves to live this Christian life. We have no means by which to please God in our flesh. We must live in the Spirit. Pastor, what does this mean? What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to yield. You're supposed to submit. You're supposed to humble yourself before the hand of God. We're supposed to live in Christ's power through submission to His revealed Word. We're supposed to die to all the things that we would desire to do in ourselves. Not working ourselves into favor with God, but rather obeying and submitting to God and allowing Him to work Himself out in us. See, there's no independence there. Submission is obedience. You are completely dependent upon God for your salvation. You are completely dependent upon God for your sanctification. Third and finally today, you are completely dependent upon God for service as well. You are completely dependent upon God for service. Look at verse 24. Let's start at the end of verse 23. Paul says, Whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. You are completely dependent upon God for service. At the end of verse 23, Paul says the, these words, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Follow Paul's logic with me this morning throughout the passage that we've read. God has given us salvation. It is a free gift that began in the mind of God, was purposed through the will of God, was affected by the person of God, and was assured by the power of God. Now we know we don't want to be independent from that. Paul then focuses in on the person who affected this salvation, that is Jesus Christ who is the creator of all things visible and invisible, physical and spiritual, who is the sustainer of all things, who has translated us from darkness into light, and who has thus made us a member of His body, that is, the church. Now, Christ is the head of this church. And as a member, each believer is designed by God, called by God, elect according to the foreknowledge of God to do nothing more or nothing less than what the head of the body expects. I gave this illustration last week at the nursing home. The head is a pretty important part of our body, isn't it? 
The head is the part of the body that tells the rest of the body what to do. The head is the part of the body that keeps the rest of the body functioning. My heart beats. My organs function properly because my head tells it to. If something goes wrong with the head, something might go wrong with the rest of the body as well. My head is what's telling my mouth to open and close. My head is what's telling my vocal cords to make certain sounds whereby you can then understand. Your head is what is deciphering those sounds and turning them into speech. Our brains are exceedingly important. If we don't have a brain, we don't ha- nothing else works in the body. If our head is removed from our body, then our body isn't good for very much anymore. Our head is integral to our body. Our head guides our body. Christ is the head of the church. Without the head, there is no body. Without the head, the body doesn't function. And if the body is functioning and it's not functioning the way the head is telling it to function, then it's not functioning properly. Then there's something wrong with the body. Then the body's not doing what it's supposed to do. The body is entirely dependent upon the head to be led. As Paul concludes the chapters, we continue thinking about his logic. He focuses upon the other side of salvation. Certainly we are in the process of sanctification whereby we as individuals are growing closer to God. We're growing in maturity in the faith. But the other side of the coin, the other side of salvation is service to God, bringing others into the knowledge of God. That just as Christ has called us in His power to become more like Him, so too Christ has called us to actively serve Him by making others more like Him. By guiding others and leading others to be more like Christ, what we called this morning in our Sunday school hour, discipleship. Paul said in verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Paul states that without question, his yieldedness to God has not been an easy road. He makes it clear that the sufferings of Christ have lived out personally in his life and in his ministry. You read the book of Acts and you see that he's been stoned many times. You read the book of Acts and you recognize that he has been beaten with many stripes. You read the book of Acts and he has been scorned and he has been ridiculed and he has been disinherited for the name of Christ. You read 1 Corinthians 4 and Paul speaks of having been without a place to stay and being hungry and being seen as foolish and being blasphemed and being reproached for the name of Christ. But then notice what Paul says in verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Paul's suffering was in the line of duty. He was doing what God had called him to do. He was living the life that God had demanded of him according to his dispensation, that word meaning administration, according to the administration of God, according to God's decree regarding what he had desired for Paul to do. Paul was serving God. 
And what did God want Paul to do? Well, that's what 26 through 29 tells us. Verses 26 and 27, God wanted Paul to share the mystery of the gospel. Verses 28 and 29, God wanted Paul to preach through warning and to teach with the goal of seeing every man one to Christ. Just the very term, a servant of God, reflects the degree to which we are dependent upon Him, does it not? We are dependent upon God for our salvation, the day that we became a servant of God. We are dependent upon Him for sanctification. Becoming a better servant of God is dependent upon God, the degree to which God is manifest in us and through us, through His Holy Spirit. And we are a servant of God in our service to Him. That as we seek to become what God would have us to become and to bring others to join us in this salvation, we're doing so according to God's decree, according to God's election, for you and I. As you read the words of Paul in Scripture, perhaps many things come to your mind. Many concepts come to your mind. Perhaps you would think, as you think of Paul's Christian testimony of sacrifice, perhaps of service, perhaps of yieldedness, perhaps obedience. Think about what Paul has described. Think about who Paul was. Think about the apostles. Think about what God has called you to as a believer. One word that won't come to your mind is the word independent. The word liberty might. The word freedom in Christ might. But as we think about those terms and how we define them, we recognize that it is indeed in Christ. But see, we all serve someone. From salvation through sanctification all the way to service, the Christian is dependent upon God for every step. Without Him, the things we do are nothing more than flesh rather than spirit. And so as we close this morning, perhaps as we go through this week and you see the flags flying and you hear the music, maybe as you see the fireworks on the fourth, or at least you hear them late at night while you're trying to sleep. Let's allow it to be a reminder. I don't want to take anything away from the Independence Day festivities as we consider the United States of America. It is both good and right to take time to thank God for what He has done through this nation. And to pray and intercede on this nation's behalf for mercy, for blessing, and for freedom. These are not bad things. And I don't want to take anything from them. But as Christians, let's be careful not to allow our cultural, national attitude of independence to affect our spiritual attitude. Let's not have it in our minds that we're such independent people that we fail to remember exactly how dependent we are on God. Let's not fail to remember 
in our musings on personal liberties and private property and independence, let's not fail to remember that we are indeed serving someone. Whether it's the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of Christ. Our spirit demands nothing less than complete submission and absolute dependence upon the God who has given you everything. He created you. He sustains you. He pursued you. He saved you. He translated you. He delivered you. He empowers you for ministry. And He grows you in Him. Let's renew our determination this week to die to self daily and to live unto Christ.